Hello and welcome to episode 118 of the Conversations with Ross podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Stephen Falk. Stephen is a writer and the creator of the FX comedy You're the Worst. You can give Stephen a follow on Twitter at Stephen Falk, F-A-L-K. Stephen, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks, Ross. I appreciate you having me. Well, Stephen, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to writing in the first place. Oh, gosh. Um, probably because no one would hire me for acting. Um, and uh, I didn't, I don't really have any other skills or any skills at all. So I thought I'd uh, maybe try writing. But, but really, um, I, I was part of a theater company here in Los Angeles after um, I graduated NYU. And um, we couldn't afford the rights to the plays, uh, you know, Samuel French or whatever, the publishing companies charge uh, rights to, to do them, uh, and we couldn't afford it. So we had to start writing our own, and that's really how I got into writing. I wasn't, I didn't take any classes ever, and I wasn't really interested in writing. I found it boring, and I, I, I kind of still do. Now, where did you grow up? I grew up in the Bay Area in Berkeley. Growing up in California, was that less of an adjustment moving to L.A.? I think so. I mean, well, in a way, um, the Bay Area and Los Angeles should not be in the same state. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so, you know, they, they feel like different places, I think. But I going from I went from California to New York, then back to, to, then to Southern California. So they, they all feel very distinct and different. But, um, I, you know, the weather is good. That's pretty much all has, has in common with the Bay Area. I hate the sports scenes here. Uh, so it's fun to, like, hate uh, the Lakers and the Dodgers from up close. Well, yes, and you've had three championships, your baseball team, in the last five years. So, you know, you got that going for you. Yes, sir, we sure do. I wouldn't count on it this year, though. We're not going to be very good, I don't think. No, I, I'm not expecting them to even make the playoffs. No, <laughs> probably not. What was your first paid writing gig? Well, uh, let's see. Well, I, I, I was a reader for a company um, out here for a while, which is... Uh, um, a guy who gets paid to um, uh, read uh, scripts and uh, that the executives don't have time to read themselves and, uh, and, and, and then write little reports on them. I think I got paid like 75 bucks um, a, a, a script or something like that. But then the first script I ever sold was a, a feature film. I started in movies. So I, I, I sold like a little indie uh, teen romantic comedy um, back in 2002, I believe. Did that ever get made? It did not. No, we actually got a green light, which is the um, is, is sort of uh, the brass ring, and uh, we were going to go into production with uh, Shia LaBeouf. This was before he was um, really big, and then before he was crazy, and um, <laughs> and there was it was some it was some weird shady thing with some like co financiers who fucked up his deal, and then. He fell out of the movie, and the movie fell apart. So, no, it, it never got made. Tell me about being a reader. You're one of the gatekeepers then. You're one of the people that's basically recommending scripts to people that have green light ability. Did you ever recommend a script that eventually got made? Oh, gosh. I, you know, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know. I remember I, I did a lot of things like reading books that they, that they didn't want to read because no one in L.A. reads books. Um and uh, some of those eventually got made. I don't know if they got made by the company, but I, I remember, gosh, it was like 10 years ago reading The Red Tent, which just got turned into like a, a TV movie with Minnie Driver, I think. Um, uh, and, and so certain things. I also was 
I would read every episode of one of their TV shows, which was a David Caruso show um, that I cannot remember the life of me what it was called. And they would have me do coverage on their own show, which is pretty silly. Because <laughs> they don't want to watch it. <laughs> I, I think that, I think that's exactly it. They didn't want to watch it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, you, you allude to a interesting point that a lot of the gatekeepers for this town are people still also looking for the key to that gate. It's very strange. Do you see a flaw in the process as to what you're looking for or what studio executives tell you to look for when you're a reader? Well, yeah, only that I have no idea what uh, I'm doing. I don't work for the company. I am sitting home in my underwear reading scripts. And based partially on that, at least, um, an executive might actually read it. So, yeah, it's completely uh, flawed. Um, And I think these days those jobs are mostly done by uh, interns, uh, uh, very lowly paid interns because, People are suing about un- unpaid interns, so they have to pay them now. <laughs> but at least they're at least they're working at the company. They often will sit in waiting area and and read scripts um, and probably just deliver oral um, you know reviews. So at this point, you're in LA. You're writing some plays. How did you get up? Uh, how did you end up on Weeds? Oh God! Well, that was a long process. After that was probably about. Eight years after um, I was writing plays, um, and during that time I was mostly writing movies that never got made, um, but that would get bought, and, and pilots, and selling pilots that would never get made or put on the air. And um, <clears throat> so that was like seven years of that, and at a certain point I realized that I should probably learn how to make TV if, God forbid, any of my pilots ever went, as they call it, they, they call it went. Um, and, uh, and so I loved weeds. I knew they had been picked up for two seasons and, um, this was season four, uh, in season four, this happened. And so I just, um, begged my agent to get me a meeting. They didn't want me to take it, um, because it would have been a, um, a paid decrease actually from my quote for selling pilots every year had gotten pretty high, but I, I really wanted to learn. So I, I uh, luckily, uh, Genji Cohen read my sample and then met with me and we gelled and hired me. Tell me about joining a show that's already established it on, on the air. You were a fan of the show. The show's been on for three or four years. And then you come in as a new writer. What's that like? Uh, it's fucking bizarre. I mean, just the, 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 the aspect of getting to write these characters that I was just, um, you know, watched as a fan so, I mean, I, I got to pull the strings to a certain extent uh, was really weird. Um, but I, I think it was, it was good because I had their voices in my head already. So I um, found I could very easily write Nancy or, or write Andy or write, uh, you know, and, and Doug. Um, it was just really, really already in my ear. Um, uh, and then just the, the process was fantastic because Genji is a true teacher. It's like a teaching hospital. You really get to produce your own episodes really from day one. Um, And I was lucky enough to get assigned a good number of scripts and and really got to learn how to make television from there. How does Genji run her writer's room? Um, You know, there's, uh, it's governed by a no asshole policy, first and foremost. So she is very careful um, to only pick uh, chill people. She has a very 
um, unorthodox view of the world and uh, and a insatiable curiosity about people. She always would refer to her writer's room as a um, island of misfit toys. Just sort of, she likes weirdos and people who don't necessarily um, get along um, so well with the typical comedy writer. Uh, we're, we're not like, you know, super joke people, although we did have one joke guy uh, in the room who had been there the whole time. Um, and and we then, then she had her number two in command who um, basically does the heavy lifting of running the room. And she's, she's always there, or at least there a majority of the, of the time, unlike a lot of showrunners. But she's not necessarily putting the puzzle pieces together, um, doing that heavy lifting. She's sort of watching over it, contributing, and then calling out whether, and then basically saying, okay, yes, I'm happy now, or no, I'm not, and here's why. Um, and and that's, that's different. Everyone runs their room different. I run mine a little differently, but um, she, she, but she runs it incredibly effectively, and her rooms are, are, are fantastic. So Weeds was a show that that basically had a, a main plot line running through each season, and sometimes those plot lines would carry over to the next one. Would you break each episode before you started writing, before you got assigned scripts? How did that work? Yeah, we, we would break the whole season, basically. Um, and um, Well, maybe not the whole season, but we'd break up to a certain point and then just start assigning them. Uh, Genji would always do the first episode, which is very typical for the showrunner to at least do the first and and last and maybe one in the middle or something. Um, yeah, and then and we'd get an outline and different shows outline to different degrees. Um, but at, at that point when I joined, we no longer really had to submit outlines to the network. They didn't care anymore or Genji had, had accrued enough power to not have to show them whatever the case may be. So we would just get really not very detailed outlines and, uh, um, and then just go off and write. So we actually had a, a fair amount by the time I joined the show, a fair amount of leeway in, um, in, in deciding exactly how those scenes looked and, and, and worked. Um, but you know, if, if you really wanted, wanted to change a lot, you would, then go to her and her number two in command and say, Hey, in, in, you know, sitting at home writing this, I found that, you know, now scene five doesn't quite work because of this. And we'd kind of, you know, re-break it together. So you were all, you had a good amount of flexibility, but you were always kind of touching base. And did you stay on weeds until the finale? I did. Well, uh, I did. I, um, <laughs> uh, physically, I, I wrote um, the second to last episode, which was episode 100, um, which was sort of a big milestone, and it was our back to a Grestick episode. I wrote that, um, and then I actually got a pilot of mine picked up by NBC, uh, a pilot that I had shot uh, to series. So I was driving to New York while they were shooting it. So that was the only of the nine episodes I wrote for Weeds that I wasn't on set to produce, um, but I was sort of producing from my car, um, you know, getting phone calls from the director uh, while I was driving to Nebraska. So that was a very interesting process. And then they shot the finale without me. I didn't get to be there, which is sad. But I, I yeah, I was there through the whole thing. 
So how do you keep a show? What's the process when a show's been on that long? And obviously you're not doing as many episodes as a traditional broadcast show, but still you get to a point where every great show, we've sort of seen the characters, we've seen them in situations. How do you feel you prevent a show that's been on the air for many years from getting stale? Well, I mean, it's, it's not always possible. I mean, there's a certain amount of staleness that just creeps in because you have explored uh, every kind of angle with the character. Um, that's why a lot of shows kind of devolve into soapiness where kind of big things are always happening because you've done all the small things and all that's left is, you know, pregnancy or murder or death, um, which we did all of that. Um, I'm not saying that, that we've got soapy, but it's certainly changed. And I, I, I think the main way that, Genji did it, and uh, it started before I left with um, season three, is really kind of picking up the show and moving it. Um, because, uh, you know, the, sh- <clears throat> the show could have just stayed in aggressive, but by season three, I think they, the writers were feeling a little burnt out and a little tired. And so they literally burned <laughs> the, the town down and, and moved it. And we kind of then, from then on, I think we did two seasons in, in Renmar, um, but then we just kept moving every season. Um, I think season, I guess it was season six, it was literally on the road, one big road trip. Um, and then and then we kind of settled back east a little bit. But I think you have to, um, you have to really be willing to change what the show looks like, which is always a giant risk. And there were, there were a lot of voices that were saying, you know, I, I, they never should have left aggressive. I, I, I missed that. But at the same time, you know, we guarantee we, we pretty much could guarantee that if the show had stayed put, that people would have grow, grown sick of it. And I think, though not everyone stayed into the beginning, the ratings held held uh, steady enough to a certain degree that we knew we were even though we were shedding people, we were gathering viewers. Um, and I think that that was the mark of what Genji and, and Roberto uh, Benabi did um, to keep it fresh. And, and then also you just have to kind of like infuse it with, you know, tackle issues that you like, that, you, that are important to you. So keep it, keep it, keep yourselves passionate about it. And also just um, uh, infuse it with a lot of cool guest stars and a lot of interesting characters. And, um, and yeah, so it's, there's a, you know, and, and look, every time a fan and fans say this all the time about many shows, like, oh, it should have should have gone off the air and it should have been canceled. At the same time, you're employing a lot of people, and that's really hard to say no to. So even if creatively you're like, as a creator, well, I could end this, or maybe I should end this. There's 150 people that that their livelihood is based on your decision. So it becomes a little bit more than I want to go out on top or I want to go out while it's fresh there. Um, this, it becomes a harder decision to make. Let's shift focus to you're the worst. Was this a script you had initially created before weeds or did you do this after weeds? I did it after weeds. I, uh, my trajectory, uh, was, um, I went from weeds to this show on NBC called next caller that I created. So that was my first show on my own. Um, that did not make it to to uh, the TV sets, they they canceled it. Then I went and did Orange is the New Black, and 
but before between uh, next caller and uh, working on Orange Is New Black, I um, pitched this show to FX only. Usually, you pitch to multiple networks, and they bought it. Um, so I, I, yeah, I just pitched it to them. I, I basically came up with it for FX, and uh, and they luckily they bought it. And what was your pitch? I, I watched every episode of You're the Worst, and I'm curious how you pitched it. I pitched it as a, a boozy, cable-y, british uh, version of Mad About You with, uh, but uh, with instead of a couple neurotics, um, a couple nar- narcissists and alcoholics and uh, sex addicts um, who fall in love. Yeah, it's a love story with damaged people. How different is the show that we saw on the air from what you had in your head when you were first developing it? Um, zero. Zero different. The only, well, the only difference was that Jimmy uh, was not written uh, English. Uh, I just happened to find uh, a fantastic actor named Chris Gere. Um, and it, I, I didn't hesitate for a second. I just said, oh, yeah, okay, that's the guy. I guess he's English. Um, but the show is... I, it's an incredibly um, perfect like distillation of my vision for better or for worse. I had minimal interference from the network and continue to, I, there are no other um, executive producers um, th- really the only other cooks aside from the, well, no, I mean, everyone contributes. So there's a lot, there's a lot of differences in that, you know, for three months, my writers, bring a lot to the table and start putting uh, putting their own spins on the characters. And then, of course, the actors do. But but the the, the sort of uh, aim is exactly what I wanted. Aya Cash, of course, one of the stars of the show, came on the podcast a few episodes ago, and she talked about how you really had to fight for her to get that part. Tell me about that process. Yeah, it was... Uh, uh, yeah, the network um, didn't want her. They They didn't quite see what I saw. And so... I, um, you know, I, casting is so important and so difficult. And when you, when you find the right person, you have to be tenacious and do your best to convince the network. And, and it's really to FX's credit that they allowed me the opportunity to change their mind. It is also to Aya Cash's um, credit, not only that she was willing to go, you know, go, get up to bat again, um, where she could have taken a very easy job on a network show that she was offered, very lucrative job. Um, so she not only passed that up, but um, fought for something that that she wasn't wanted for um, and, uh, and, and got it. She's so talented um, that she was able to convince them. But basically I had to fly to New York, rewrite the scenes, um, change her wardrobe, uh, hire a videographer and tape her because she was living in New York and would not come out again. Um, obviously, you know, they wouldn't pay for her either. So uh, I had to go there and uh, we retaped her. And John Langraff, the head of FX, was willing to watch her again, which is, again, it's unheard of. And um, then they called me and said, okay, you're right. You're right. We see it now. And, uh, and that's um, I'm, I'm proud of myself that I, I stuck to my guns, but it was also incredibly scary. And if I had been wrong, I would have lost a lot of credibility. In, in other words, if 
not if they had not given her a second chance, but if they had let me cast her and then she had not worked out or people hated her or she had no chemistry with um, Chris, it could have been a disaster. But um, but uh, I, I just can't say it, it, it worked out so well and I love my cast so much and they're all so brilliant. Um, so it's, it's incredibly uh, informative for me and a good sort of reminder to stick to my guns unless I'm wrong. <laughs> Is there a moment of dread when you go through the auditions, everyone tests in front of the network, you have the cast that you want, and then they're like, no, we don't want your female lead. Get another one. Are you thinking, well, this whole thing's going to blow up right now? Um, no, because I, you know, I assume there's someone else out there. Um, but I had fallen in love with the idea of the two of them. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I probably was panicking a bit, but I also, I think I knew I was right. And I think I, I, based on what their problems were, I thought I could correct it. I didn't think it was unfixable, but it was certainly a scary 48 hours. So tell me about being in charge of other writers now and writing your own writer's room. I love being in charge. I, uh, (laughs) you know, I, I got really great training, as I say, from Genji and Roberto. Um, and then, and then when I ran and I ran my NBC room, which is my only room, it was a bigger room. Um, and it was, um, a less hundred percent harmonious room. They were a good room, but they were very different. Um, but I, I, I really had taken so many lessons on, how not only leadership, but how to, um, how to do this, how to break story effectively from Roberto and Genji that I found myself quite ready to do it. Um, also coupled with my own, I think, um, uh, the, the fact that I flourish uh, when I get to boss people around and that I have a very good analytical mind for story. I'm just good. And and it may go all the way back to being a script reader for three years. I'm just good at solving story problems and putting stories together. And, um, uh, but, you know, and and I I certainly learned about the hiring process, but that first challenge is finding those people. And that's a whole, whole process of reading and interviewing. And I, I really had to kind of design my own methodology, uh, which has a lot to do with instinct, but I actually did have a quantifiable uh, way to go about it and put put a room together. And I, I did a great job with this room. They're fantastic. When you were reading material to assemble your writers, were you reading specs of existing shows or original pilots? No, never specs of existing shows. I, I can't. I can't. Um, no, what I'm trying to do is and I tell agents this when they, you know, pitch me their writers, I say, look, I, what I, you know, here's what I'm looking for. Um, I don't want people mimicking my tone. I don't want samples that are like, well, your show's really edgy and sexual and, you know, about quote unquote bad people. So um, I, I'm going to send you all those kind of samples. I want the, I want, I want original voices and I want the purest distillation of those voices. So that's what I tell them. And so I want to read the material and then meet them and, and know that they wrote it. In, in other words, you can tell 
Um, and then I, I tear the covers off so I don't know what their gender is or what level they're, they're, they would come in at um, in terms of uh, their history. Um, and uh, I read from there, and then I meet with them, and I um, assemble the room then based on personality as well. What mistakes do you see young writers make most often? Oh, gosh. Um, there's so many. I would say, first of all, um, format and uh, grammar and spelling are incredibly important. Um, so I, w- I would learn those. <laughs> um, uh, and um, then, gosh, um, trying to sound like uh, other writers or other projects, I think that's a, that's, um, a very, very uh, common thing to do at the beginning is to try to um, mimic other people. And, and I think probably all writers should, or, or, or it's, it's, at least it's a natural part of the development. But what I'm looking for is someone who has a very distinct style um, because the ability to mimic someone else's writing, like mine, their boss, is, I think, shouldn't be that hard and isn't. That's why I'm not looking for to read and it's always sunny spec. I don't want to know that you can write Charlie's character I want to know what what interests you and what your dialogue sounds like, um, because I want you to be able to bring that flavor uh, into writing my show, basically. Um, so yeah, I would say not having a clear and unique um, voice. What mistakes do you still make on the page? Not having a clear and unique voice. No, I I think um, I mean I'm I'm writing right now. I'm writing the. I just finished the first episode of season two. I'm writing the second right now. And, you know, I'll write a, write a scene and it'll just be like, that, that's a basic ass scene. Like there's nothing special about it. Now, uh, coming it sideways. What is a different way that I could get into this, I, this scene? I, 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 I have beginnings and endings of scenes that I don't need uh, always. That's something I do constantly. Um, and luckily I can, I can fix that in the editing room if it makes it all the way through. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, I'll start a scene by having someone walk into the room and hello, and then they get into it and you don't need to do that. Just start the scene in the middle of it, like find the conversation in process. Um, and, um, so I do that a lot and I just, um, I'll have, uh, gosh, I'll have extra people that I don't need, um, but, but by the time I'm writing these episodes, um, the scenes are, we know there's, there's story to them. Um, and if there's not, I cut it. I don't need it. Um, I'm a firm believer in, you know, every scene has to have conflict. It has to be about something. doesn't mean your characters have to be fighting, but your characters have to kind of want something in every scene and hopefully want diff- different things. And, um, be taking interesting and unique tactics to get them. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big story nerd. I like, I love talking about craft and I still make massive uh, amounts of mistakes. I think my dialogue can sound really, really just lame at the beginning and, until I go back and edit and, and, and punch it up. And, and um, there, there's sort of a click that happens where I go, oh yeah, this is how Lindsay talks. 
um, or, or this is how Lindsay can talk. And, um, and that's when the scenes start to really come alive, when I do a rewrite. What shows are you watching, and what shows do you think have the best writing on TV? I think, you know, even though I've only seen an episode and a quarter, I think um, Better Call Saul, though, I think it has a, a lot of different writers from uh, Breaking Bad. I can already tell, when, when you watch um, his shows, you know you're in the hands of a good captain. You as a viewer can relax, because you know everything is going to work out. And I don't mean for the characters. I mean, the story is all going to tie up, not necessarily neatly, but every part is going to be used. The story, everything you've been watching has a purpose. I, I, I honestly, even though our shows could not be more different, I use Breaking Bad as a, um, a, a lighthouse for me all the time, um, both, you know, for what lighthouses were used for, what to avoid, but also what to aspire to. And I, if you watch season one of You're the Worst, um, I think if, if, if one were to watch it academically uh, and very closely, one could see that there is a, uh, a world, a universe being built and a very specific universe. And that when we introduce things, they're usually um, resolved or, or used again or brought to a conclusion. Um, so that's a show that I think has great writing. Um, show, you know, I, I love uh, uh, Broad City makes me laugh uh, probably more than a lot of shows. Um, I like the Eric Andre show. That makes me laugh, but usually when I'm high, because um, it's, it's calibrated to a... Um, a, uh, a brain um, on uh, drugs perfectly. Right, that's the target audience there. The target audience. Um, let me think what I want. Uh, what, what are other shows? Like Silicon Valley. Um, I, you know, since I wrote on Orange is New Black, I definitely like that show a lot. Um, I think Beef is great. Um, uh, they write some of the best insults um, in, the, in the universe. Their dialogue is Prickly and fantastic. Um, I admire, but don't watch Blackish a lot. But I, I get it. Um, I think it's a good, good sort of standard sitcom. Um, what else is there? What am I? What am I missing? Remind me. I'm, not I'm super into episodes. I love episodes. I love episodes. I watch episodes and I watch The Americans, and neither gets any acclaim or gets nominated for things. And I'm just like, these are two of the best shows on TV. What are people missing here? I think. Well. Because episodes is not important. It doesn't feel important. It's a very, I think it's a very, and I mean this with affection, it's kind of a small show. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's about minor dramas and minor tragedies and minor, minor jokes. Um, it, but it, it, it's, it, it just works. It, it's really clicked into being something that I really look forward to watching. I, I watch... You know, I, I can tell if I like a show how quickly I it gets off my DVR, and and that's a show that is almost gone immediately. Yep, I'm the same way. Those shows that pile on for eight episodes, it's you kind of lose hope with them at some point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is being a working writer what you expected it to be? No, I mean I, I literally thought there would be like a lot of hookers and a lot of cocaine. Um, <laughs> 
And so far, I've not hired one prostitute, and I have not been offered coke at all. Um, You're going to the wrong parties. I guess I guess so. Yeah, there's not, there's not as many parties. Um, being a writer is, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, the, I, I remember once, this was earlier in my career, but I was um, in the middle of the woods because I was shooting something uh, as an actor. Um, and I was waiting for a notes call with Warner Brothers, the WB, on, I had a, a pilot at WB. And I remember sitting on this log, memorizing lines and waiting for this uh, to take notes. I was out in the woods and I was like, I think I wrote this down. I am so lucky I get to just tell stories all day. And that's, I mean, the, the, the job of being in a writer's room, if you have a good writer's room, if you have a bad one, it could be a, a nightmare. I get to sit around and just kind of tell jokes with some of my favorite people all day and get paid for it. And uh, while show running is incredibly hard and I, and and exhausting, um, it, it, it's just a fucking blast. And I, I just remind myself of all those shitty jobs that I could have, that a lot of people have. Anytime I, I, I feel like complaining, and I pretty much, that stops me from complaining immediately. You've been listening to Stephen Falk. Stephen is a writer and the creator of the FX comedy, You're the Worst. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Stephen Falk. Stephen, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Rob.